Thank you. Thank you. On the politically explosive issue of taxes and the social safety net, the candidate drew a line in the sand. It may be that there would be votes for the Republican Party in the promise of low taxes and vanishing expenditures, he declared in the autumn of 1916. I am not one of those who believe votes are to be won by misrepresentations, skillful presentations of half-truths, and plausible deductions from false premises. Good government cannot be found on the bargain counter. We cannot curtail the usual appropriations or the care of mothers with dependent children or the support of the poor, the insane, and the infirm. Still more explicit was the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor of Massachusetts in contrasting his own position with the tax-cutting proposals put forth by his Democratic rival. As he said, our party will have no part in a scheme of economy which adds to the misery of the wards of the Commonwealth, the sick, the insane, and the unfortunate, those who are too weak to protest. So vowed Calvin Coolidge, who in most history books lives on dimly as a prototype reactionary, the cheese-pairing tool of big business. If America has a civic faith, it is the near-universal identification with personal freedom. But what exactly is freedom? Each generation, arguably each citizen, defines the term for himself. This helps to explain why leaders come in and out of fashion. It also gives rise to what I call the alternating currents of presidential leadership. In the aftermath of Franklin Roosevelt, that conservative radical, and Ronald Reagan, that radical conservative, we might segregate presidents into two admittedly oversimplified categories. Those who would free their countrymen through government, a la FDR, and those like Reagan who would free them from government. Clearly, Coolidge belongs to the second school. As such, it is hardly surprising that he should be held in low regard by New Deal historians. But time has a way of eroding orthodoxy, or at least of admitting doubt. More than 80 years have passed since a kerosene lit in a farmhouse in a remote Vermont hamlet witnessed the most dramatic of inaugurals for the most prosaic of presidents. To his acid-tongued contemporary H.L. Mencken, Coolidge was, quote, the greatest man ever to come out of Plymouth Notch, Vermont. <laughs> it would, in my opinion, be more accurate to say of Coolidge that he was preeminently a man of his time and place, bred in the bone to accept what James McGregor Burns has called the 19th century's unquestioned dogma of the self-sufficient individual, autonomous, striving, competitive, and successful. In many ways, Coolidge is a throwback um, to those 19th century presidents uh, who had a view of the Constitution as a limiting rather than an enabling document. Uh, now, this viewpoint tends to disturb many a modern historian uh, for whom the great offense of 19th century presidents is their refusal to act like 20th century presidents. 19th century presidents were less colorful and more cautious than those swashbuckling egoists who stood at Armageddon, winning immortality through the words they spoke 
as much as the administrative or legislative actions they initiated. Coolidge defined the genius of American democracy as organization from the bottom up, not dictation or even inspiration from the top down. Not long before he left the White House, he declared, perhaps one of the most important accomplishments of my administration has been minding my own business. <laughs> Traditionally, so-called strong presidents have been lionized for their willingness to enlist the state in economic planning and the pursuit of long-delayed social justice, and understandably so. Coolidge, by contrast, has been seen as a mere caretaker, who, if he didn't personally cause the Great Depression, stands accused of criminal negligence in not preventing it. And the 20s, well, the 20s are viewed not as a fertile period of economic creativity, a time when wages rose faster than in any other decade in the 20th century, when educational spending quadrupled and technology enhanced life in most American households. Rather, they're seen as a stifling chapter in dull complacency and Babylonian excess. At the center of it all stands this unlikeliest of popular heroes, who in his own lifetime became swathed in epigrammatic legend. Calvin, we hardly knew ye, in part because this dour, lonely, more than slightly mystical figure whose disdain for sham set him apart even in his own time and above all in his own profession, wished us to know only so much. When William Allen White, the great uh, Emporia, Kansas journalist, approached the president for an interview in 1925, Coolidge asked just exactly what White was seeking. White replied that he wanted to peek at the man behind the mask. I don't know if I can help you, mused Coolidge. Maybe there isn't any. Eighty years later, we are still peeking. For many years, Coolidge uh, and his family lived characteristically in a very small, very modest duplex house on Massasoit Street in Northampton, Massachusetts, uh, the monthly rent of which uh, did not exceed $28. Over the mantelpiece in the living room of the house was an embroidered quotation, which might very well have summed up Coolidge's public persona. A wise old owl sat on an oak. The more he saw, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard, why can't we be like that wise old bird? If Coolidge seemed enigmatic to his contemporaries, he appears prehistoric to those of us reared on today's political theater with its sound bites, focus groups, and cool blue backdrops. Only now are we rediscovering the progressive Massachusetts lawmaker and governor who favored votes for women, popular education of United States senators, and working man's compensation long before uh, they became popular. Governor Coolidge was especially outspoken in support of the teaching profession. While still a member of the legislature, he complained, quote, we compensate liberally the manufacturer and merchant, but we fail to appreciate those who guard the minds of our youth. As governor, Coolidge anticipated later rent control measures by enacting consumer safeguards and combating unscrupulous landlords. He championed public transportation and a reduction of working hours for women and children. We must humanize industry, he said, or the system will break down. The man famously arraigned for declaring the chief business of America is business went on to proclaim in the very same text that the chief idea of the American people is idealism.
Any impartial reading of that famous speech, delivered before the American Society of Newspaper Editors in January 1925, will quickly reveal Coolidge to be anything but an apologist for big business. In its coverage of the address, the next day's issue of the New York Times did not so much as mention the phrase by which succeeding generations of historians have speared Coolidge like a butterfly pinned to a table. For Coolidge, prosperity was an instrument to be used, not a deity to be worshipped. He had said as much a decade earlier in his inaugural address as president of the Massachusetts State Senate. Coolidge, have faith in Massachusetts. Do the day's work. If it be to protect the rights of the weak, whoever objects, do it. If it be to help a powerful corporation better to serve the people, whatever the opposition, do that. Expect to be called a stand patter, but don't be a stand patter. Expect to be called a demagogue, but don't be a demagogue. Don't hesitate to be as revolutionary as science. Don't hesitate to be as reactionary as the multiplication table. Statutes, said Coolidge, must appeal to more than material welfare. Wages won't satisfy, be they never so large. Nor houses, nor lands, nor coupons, though they, thick, though they fall thick as the leaves of autumn. Man has a spiritual nature. Touch it, and it must respond as the magnet responds to the pole. That's not the Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> That's not, I'm tempted to say, your grandfather's Calvin Coolidge. In fact, people have been reassessing Coolidge at least since the 1890s when his Amherst classmates discovered to their astonishment that this sphinx-like Vermonter could entertain the campus with his ride delivery of the annual Grove Oration. Later, lawmakers in Boston would have second thoughts about the quick-witted president of the state senate, who, when a colleague was told to go to hell by an angry senator, calmly replied that he had looked up the law and found he didn't have to. In the 1920s, the imperious Senator Henry Cabot Lodge would live to regret his contemptuous dismissal of Coolidge's presidential prospects. According to Lodge, the self-proclaimed scholar in politics, no man who lived in a $28 a month Northampton duplex could expect to reside at the much grander address of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Sooner or later, Coolidge proved them all wrong. We don't have time this afternoon to go into all the intricacies and the Byzantine of the Boston police strike of 1919. Uh, suffice it to say, Coolidge went into this career-making episode um, with uh, a well-earned reputation as a friend of the working man. Um, while still a state senator, he had played a leading role in improving conditions following a, a textile strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts. He had successfully dealt with post-war work stoppages among Boston telephone workers, the city's subway, and its fire department. Um, his palpable honesty and modest lifestyle attracted supporters in working-class neighborhoods hostile to the likes of Henry Cabot Lodge. Um, in fact, Coolidge's greatest retrospective failing may have been his greatest contemporary asset, quite simply, his unerring political instincts. Throughout his career, Coolidge displayed a sure grasp of how to let events ripen, flushing out prospective opponents while delegating authority to subordinates. 
Uh, one critic said he, he displayed a positive genius for inactivity. <laughs> Until, quite frankly, uh, the situation had ripened to the point where there was political advantage to be had, uh, hay to be made, and that's exactly what he did in the police strike. Uh, he really did very little uh, and until things got out of out of command, out of control. Um, at which point he eventually called in the, the National Guard. Um, he had reason to believe he wasn't interested in strike breaking, uh, and in fact he had real reason to believe that his actions would be politically unpopular. He was up for re-election. Uh, that year. And of course, let's remember post World War I, the country had been swept by strikes. Uh, but when the police went on strike, that was a, you know, that was something beyond, beyond the pale. But Coolidge reacted cautiously. Uh, he wanted the mayor of Boston and the police commissioner uh, to settle this themselves. He didn't want to intrude, A, because it went against his, his view of limited government, B, frankly, because it went against what he thought were his political. Um, uh, interests. But in any event, he found he had no choice. And uh, he, he called in the guard and um, uh, restored order. Um, but that's not what made him famous. That's not what made him president. Um, it was only after it became clear that the striking police officers had lost their gamble uh, that Coolidge moved center stage. Not on his own volition. Um, he was, in fact, unwittingly assisted there by Samuel Gompers who was the head of the American Federation of Labor. Uh, Gompers wired the governor, criticizing uh, his actions against the strikers. Uh, Coolidge, in a tersely worded rejoinder, um, galvanized public opinion by declaring, quote, there is no right to strike against the public safety by anybody, anywhere, anytime. The words would reverberate six decades later when Coolidge's political heir, Ronald Reagan, took the unprecedented step of firing striking air traffic controllers in the summer of 1981. There's a direct connection. Reagan put Coolidge's portrait in the cabinet room um, and quoted Coolidge at the time of the uh, Patco strike, which was a defining moment in the Reagan presidency. At a time of widespread unrest, uh, fears of domestic Bolshevism and uh, post-war disillusionment, Coolidge's leadership made him the man of the hour, even if it was largely rhetorical leadership. Uh, in that November, far from losing, far from paying a political price for his actions, uh, he scored the biggest landslide in the history of Massachusetts. By the way, his campaign expenditures for governor that year were $2,171.90. He won 62% of the vote. He even came within 5,000 votes of carrying Boston, which, needless to say, Republicans then and now did not carry. The police strike illustrates Coolidge's uncanny gift of timing. Beyond that, however, it suggests a man reluctant to wade into controversy unless compelled to do so by events otherwise beyond his control or very real sense of duty. That's relevant, it seems to me, when you get to why didn't he take a more proactive role to, quote, avoid uh, Wall Street's collapse in 1929. 
Coolidge came by his values as the product of rural New England, where democracy and self-reliance were synonymous. Of his Vermont neighbors, he said, they drew no class distinctions except toward those who assumed superior airs. These they held in contempt. He, re- he remembered when he came to write his autobiography as a boy, there was a hired girl in the family, and she always had pride of place in the family wagon, uh, depending on how many people were in it. Uh, the hired girl always took precedence over, the, uh, over him, the son of the family. That's Vermont. That's Vermont democracy. Um, the notion that, the problem with that, of course, is beguiling as it is, attractive as it is, a town meeting is not a national government. Coolidge, however, maintained a healthy sense of proportion about himself and his seemingly exalted status in the White House. You know, famously John Adams' prayer is carved in the uh, fireplace of the uh, state dining room. I've often thought that these words of Calvin Coolidge should be inscribed over the door. It is a great advantage to a president, said Coolidge, and a major source of safety to the country for him to know that he is not a great man. Not surprisingly, press criticism rolled off his back. An agitated Herbert Hoover once protested an unfriendly column in the American Mercury. You mean that one in the magazine with the green cover, said Coolidge? I started to read it, but it was against me, so I didn't finish it. (laughs) Think how different history might have been in the 20th century if other presidents simply didn't finish it. When it came to defining government's proper sphere, Coolidge was a minimalist, not a nihilist. There's a difference. In his first message to Congress in December 1923, for example, he advocated federal anti-lynching legislation, endorsed a minimum wage for female workers, and urged a constitutional amendment to prohibit child labor. This is also vintage Coolidge. Nothing is easier than spending the public money. It does not appear to belong to anybody. It will come as no surprise that Calvin Coolidge, in and out of office, made a career out of being underestimated. In some ways, he still is. Certainly, the portrait enshrined in textbook history bears scant resemblance to the most popular American political figure between the two Roosevelts. The unlikely radio star and diligent administrator who worked longer hours than Woodrow Wilson had before the war. Who entertained more White House guests than Theodore Roosevelt who conducted more frequent, if less revealing, press conferences than FDR. Hardly a great communicator in the modern sense, Coolidge seized upon radio to compensate for his lack of charisma. In his own words, I can't make an engaging, rousing, or oratorical speech to a crowd, as you can, he told a fellow politico. All I can do is stand up and talk to them in a matter-of-fact way about the issues of the campaign. Radio equalized everything. It was the perfect medium for someone like Coolidge, who was understated in his oratory and his uh, uh, oratorical claims. The recently opened papers of White House doctor Joel Boone explode the myth of a do-nothing president who swept away his term. They reveal just how great a toll the presidency claimed from Coolidge. 
who never recovered from the 1924 death of his namesake son. The ways of providence are often beyond our understanding, wrote the grieving father. I do not know why such a price was exacted for occupying the White House. In the days following young Cal's death, the president instructed the head of his Secret Service detail never to turn away any boy who wanted to see him. To one White House visitor he remarked, when I look out that window, I always see my boy playing tennis on that court out there. That he blamed himself for the loss of his son is more than sufficient explanation for the emotional depression that shadowed Coolidge's years in office. Of course, it was another depression falling hard on the heels of his departure from Washington in March 1929, which has led historians to arraign him for his alleged failure to anticipate or avert economic disaster. They misread the Yankee fatalist who wrote to his father on New Year's Day 1926, I suppose I am the most powerful man in the world, but great power does not mean much except great limitations. I cannot have any freedom to come and go. I am only in the clutch of forces that are greater than I am. And then a true cry from the heart, thousands are waiting to shake my hand today. It sounds like a bromide, but the fact of the matter is history is the most organic of disciplines. It grows out literally of the past. To fault Coolidge's generation for failing to grasp and implement Keynesian economics is akin to criticizing prehistoric man for his ignorance of fire or Civil War doctors for whacking penicillin. Imagine for a moment, an America, a very different America, in which few citizens look to the man in the White House to feel their pain or solve their problems. If you were Coolidge's age in 1923, you would have been through a roller coaster, a tumultuous, I mean, in some ways, I suppose, not terribly dissimilar to what today's generation, if you look beginning with the Kennedy assassination and Vietnam and the credibility gap and the assassinations of 68 and Watergate and a president leaving office and the end of the, the Cold War, on and on and on. This, this sense that history had accelerated, uh, that it was that we were all on a treadmill going ever faster and faster and trying to keep up with events um, beyond our control. Well, that's not unique to our world. If you go back to the 1920s, say you were Coolidge's age, uh, think of what you would have experienced in a single tumultuous generation. Um, you would have seen the death of the assassination of a very popular president named William McKinley coming hard on the heels of America's first foreign war as we grapple with the whole notion of imperialism and Republican empire. Uh, then McKinley is assassinated. He's replaced by Teddy Roosevelt who reinvents in many ways not only the presidency but in some ways the nation in a few short years, who certainly uh, reinvents the Republican Party and then splits it down the middle, the nation's governing party, in 1912 because he's not happy with uh, William Howard Taft's performance. Um, then you see Woodrow Wilson, the first Democratic presidential president in a generation and only the second in more than 50 years. He takes office on a platform of domestic reform, the new freedom, only to become a wartime president who's consumed 
by regimentation, domestic turmoil, and shameful outbreaks of racial and ethnic intolerance. Between 1916 and 1920, four years, tax revenues multiplied sixfold. During the same period, the national debt went from $1 billion in the aggregate to $26 billion. Wartime inflation sent the cost of living skyrocketing. Factor in the post-war wave of strikes, red baiting, and official repression, and it is small wonder that voters in 1920, desperate for a return uh, to the way things used to be, should embrace what Warren Harding memorably, if ungrammatically, called normalcy. There was a sense that people had been exposed to too much history, too much change. And um, unfortunately, of course, they were disillusioned by Harding and his boozy Ohio gang, uh, who looted the, looted the public uh, treasury and tarnished what remained of wartime idealism. All of this had happened in the space of about 20 years. That's the backdrop for Coolidge. When um, Coolidge was unexpectedly nominated for vice president in 1920 to run with Harding, a reporter from Massachusetts who knew him offered to bet his colleagues at dinner that Warren Harding would die in office, thereby enabling the famously lucky Coolidge to succeed to the presidency. Others were even more contemptuous of the closed-mouthed Yankee. In the words of one Democratic observer that year, Coolidge was distinguishable from the furniture only when he moved. <laughs> well, but this is Coolidge, but there's another side to Coolidge. Coolidge is a Yankee, he is a fatalist, he's a Puritan. William Allen White got a lot of things wrong in his biography of, of Coolidge, which is a delightful read, but bears almost no resemblance to reality. But when he called him a Puritan in Babylon, that was a stroke of genius. Coolidge said, things are so ordered in the world that those who violate its law cannot escape the penalty. Nature is inexorable. If men do not follow the truth, they cannot live. Nothing in his subsequent behavior was so revealing as Coolidge's conduct on that sultry night in August 1923, when Warren Harding died in a San Francisco hotel room, and the new president was sworn into office by his 72-year-old father, a Vermont notary public. The Lamplit inaugural conducted in a front parlor 17 by 14 feet, in a house bereft of electricity and without indoor plumbing, struck a powerful chord among Americans who had no intention of practicing such rustic self-denial in their own lives, but who took vicarious comfort from having a president who did. The 1920s are a time when men and women moved forward, often while looking back. In this, at least, Coolidge was at one with his countrymen. Before setting out for Washington on the morning of August 3rd, the new president stopped at the Hillside Cemetery in Plymouth Notch, where five generations of his family lay buried. He paused before the grave of his mother, whose life had ended prematurely when Calvin was a boy of 12. Hers was to be the first picture he placed on his White House desk, a likeness he would carry with him until the day of his own death. 
At the White House, Coolidge gave strict orders to Chief Usher Ike Hoover. I want things as they used to be before, he said. The resulting transformation was the difference between an Ohio speakeasy and a New England church supper. (laughs) Among his first acts as president, this repressed but deeply emotional Vermonter wrote a letter to a Northampton shoemaker and Democrat named Jim Lucy, with whom he had forged a deep, if unlikely, friendship. Dear Mr. Lucy, began the president, not often do I see or write you, but I want you to know that if it were not for you, I should not be here, and I want to tell you how much I love you. Do not work too much now, and try to enjoy yourself in your well-earned leisure of years. From his first hours in the White House, Coolidge would prove a thoroughly unconventional president. Shrewd and sentimental, calculating and dutiful, Coolidge shunned the glad-handing of his chosen profession. Unlike most of his fellow citizens, who maintain a tolerant disregard for politicians, providing they don't get above themselves, Coolidge was openly scornful of the political mind. Men in public life, he said, had been twice spoiled. Quote, they have been spoiled with praise, and they have been spoiled with abuse. With them, nothing is natural. Everything is artificial. Far from the tool of big business often portrayed, Coolidge refused to recognize the Soviet Union, despite pleas from entrepreneurs who envisioned fortunes to be made in the Russian market. He was confident that the Marxist experiment was doomed. Communism will fail, he predicted, because what it attempts is against human nature. No man will provide me with food and other necessities of life unless he is a gainer by it. None of this impressed cafe society, which sneered at Coolidge and the culture that produced him. Alice Roosevelt Longworth famously observed that the president looked as if he had been weaned on a pickle. When Coolidge opened his mouth, it was claimed, a moth flew out. And who can forget Dorothy Parker's immortal wisecrack, as cruel as it was tasteless, on being informed of Coolidge's death in 1933. How could they tell? In fact, there were personal as well as political reasons for his reticence. It had been said of the radiant Grace Coolidge, formerly a teacher at Northampton's Clark School for the Deaf, that having made the deaf to hear, she might yet coax the dumb to speak. In truth, her husband's silences were at least partly intended to conserve his dwindling energy. For Coolidge was already, by the summer of 1923, suffering symptoms of the heart disease that would end his life at the age of 60. On one occasion, Bernard Baruch expressed amazement that the private Coolidge was so unlike his reputation as the great stone face. Well, Baruch replied the president, many times I say only yes or no to people. Even that is too much. It winds them up for 20 minutes more. (laughs) It's a nice story. On a par with the oft-told chestnut that has Coolidge returning from church, only to have Grace inquire into the subject of the youthful minister's public eloquence. Asked the subject of his sermon, Coolidge replies, sin. An exasperated Grace demands to know what the preacher had to say on this perennially fascinating topic. He was against it, replies Coolidge, in his best 
deadpan manner, as Grace was the first to acknowledge the story was too good to be true. But it is not without point. Shrewd as ever, Coolidge cultivated an image as Silent Cal for reasons which have as much to do with uh, political cover as with a personal timidity that perhaps represented his greatest failing as a politician. All his life, Coolidge did battle with paralyzing shyness. As a boy in Plymouth, the sound of strangers being entertained by his parents in the kitchen had frozen him in his tracks. For the adult Coolidge, an introvert and an extrovert's profession, greeting their counterparts on the campaign trail required an act of will. In time, he conquered his crippling reserve, quote, but every time I meet a stranger, I've got to go through the old kitchen door back home, and it's not easy. His reserve was matched by his canniness. Denied the usual political gifts, Coolidge created a public persona that held the world at bay while allowing him to indulge a humor that was sharp as Vermont cheddar. For politicians, laughter has multiple uses. It can express a genuine whimsy with which Coolidge was generously endowed. It can also deflect those who come too near or probe too deeply. No less an authority than Will Rogers said of Coolidge that he wasted more humor on folks than almost anybody. Over the years, he developed his silent act into a running joke a fierce, funny individuality cackling at pretense. If you don't say anything, he once remarked, you won't be called on to repeat it. (laughs) (laughs) Hoping to fill a long silence with small talk, one visitor to the White House looked out the window one soggy afternoon and noted, I wonder if it will ever stop raining. Well, replied Coolidge, it always has. (laughs) Many Coolidge stories have the tang of self-parody. Urged to increase spending on military aviation, the president asked his cabinet, why can't we just buy one airplane and have all the pilots take turns? (laughs) Having nurtured his reputation for thrift in words and dollars, Coolidge made it work for him. Voters took an instant liking to this prim, dignified Yankee who hated wasted lives even more than wasted dollars. They rubbed their eyes over a public servant whose response to his election as governor of Massachusetts was to exchange his $1 a day room at the Adams House for two rooms costing $2 a day. There was no dignity, Coolidge liked to say, quite so great as living within your means. Unbought and unbossed, when presented a copy of the intimate papers of Colonel House, the president pointedly told his would-be sponsor, Frank Stearns, a Boston merchant, popularly known as Lord Lingerie, that an unofficial advisor to a president of the United States is not a good thing. Did I ever try to advise you, said Stearns? No, replied Coolidge, but I thought I'd better tell you anyway. (laughs) For good measure, Coolidge angrily returned a check for $5,000, that Stearns had tried to present him as a gift. He also, by the way, offered to build the president a marble mausoleum in Plymouth Notch. Needless to say, that didn't happen. In modern terms, Coolidge was a control freak. He prohibited his wife from driving, horseback riding, flying an airplane, bobbing her hair, or wearing slacks. He chose her hats, great monstrosities, 
huge picture hats that she hated, but she had no choice but to wear. He also bought her dresses. He had slightly better taste. Um, and there, money was no object. Very interesting. He would uh, cons uh, conserve on anything except Grace's wardrobe. Finally, one morning over breakfast, the first lady rebelled. She knew nothing of her own engagements, she complained. Couldn't the Secret Service prepare each day a list of the coming week's programs, she asked. A reasonable request. Coolidge peered over the top of his newspaper. Grace, he remarked, we don't give out that information promiscuously. <laughs> Once asked how he got his exercise, the president slyly replied, having my picture taken. <clears throat> In fact, at various times, he let photographers depict him wearing cowboy chaps, a Boy Scout getup, farming overalls, and full Sioux Indian regalia. Oh, mammy, he told his wife, they're making a perfect fool out of me. On second thought, he concluded that presidential dignity could be overrated. After all, said the dour Yankee, it's good for people to laugh. Somewhat contradictorily, he also uh, observed, famously, uh, that he always figured the American people wanted a solemn ass for president, so I went along with him. <laughs> to most Americans in the 1920s, Coolidge was more than a character. He was character. Admirers savored his comment after being sworn in as vice president. Quote, I don't feel half as important as I did on the day I graduated from Black River Academy. They chuckled approvingly over his exchange with the senator who pointed at the White House one day and asked its current occupant who lived there. Nobody, said Coolidge. They just come and go. <laughs> and they quoted approvingly the story of Calvin Jr., who went to work in a Connecticut Valley tobacco field the morning, the very morning, his father succeeded Harding as president. Told by a youthful co-worker, if my father was president, I wouldn't be working in a tobacco field. Calvin Jr. shot back, you would if your father were my father. <laughs> One of my favorite Coolidge stories concerns um, the president's habit, almost genius, of putting down political panhandlers. Uh, there's a congresswoman from Illinois, uh, of very few uh, women in Congress at the time, named Ruth Hannah McCormick. And if the name sounds familiar, she was Mark Hannah's daughter, married into the McCormick family. And um, she uh, laid siege to the White House, hoping to secure a federal judgeship for a prominent Chicagoan of Polish descent. So ultimately, she arranged for a group of Polish Americans to lobby the president in person. Ushered into the executive office, the group shuffled its feet uncomfortably as a stony-faced Coolidge stared at the floor. After what seemed like an eternity, the president at last broke his silence. Mighty fine carpet there. <laughs> Relieved and expectant, the delegation smilingly nodded its concurrence. New one, said Coolidge. Cost a lot of money. At this, the Poles smiled even more appreciatively. She wore out the old one trying to get you a judge. <laughs> End of interview. <laughs> then and since, few in the academy 
have taken Coolidge seriously as a political thinker or leader. To presidential scholars enamored of the bully pulpit, the notion of Coolidge as a political moralist may be absurd. Well, think again. With the people themselves of the government, he maintained, no doubt influenced by the town meetings of his rural Vermont youth, it should be obvious that what the people cannot do for themselves, their government cannot do for them. Wrenched out of context, such sentiments only reinforce the idea of Coolidge as a throwback to the 19th century. He is a throwback to the libertarianism of John Stuart Mill who warned that, quote, a state which dwarves its men, even for beneficial purposes, will find that with small men, no really great thing can be accomplished. With his bedrock belief in local authority, personal responsibility, and the separation of powers, Coolidge is a throwback to the Jeffersonian school of thought, which holds that the greatness of America derives not from the power of its government, but from the freedom of its people. Contrast Coolidge's simple, unwavering faith in the common man with the post-war doubts expressed by such opinion leaders as Walter Whitman. In his 1925 book, The Phantom Public, Whitman made it clear that democracy was in need of protection from the masses. Blaming the average man for his averageness, this former socialist turned bullmooser, turned Wilsonian idealist, turned meritocrat, argued that one must not expect too much from ordinary voters. The problems that vex democracy, declared Whitman, seem to be unmanageable by democratic methods. The public must be put in its place so that it may exercise its powers, but no less and perhaps even more, so that each of us may live free of the trampling and the roar of a bewildered herd. Well, while Whitman wrestled with himself, Coolidge administered his own lessons in political management. Within months of taking office, Harding oil from Teapot Dome was washed away by Coolidge kerosene. Skillfully, the new president maneuvered to take the political initiative away from investigators on Capitol Hill and give it to not one but two special counsels, one Democrat and one Republican. He arranged an impromptu confrontation in his office, what I would give to have been there. Harry Dougherty was the Attorney General of the United States. Um, profoundly unimpressive. Um, and almost certainly venal. And um, a crony uh, with a capital C of Warren Harding's. Um, he brought Harry Dougherty into the Oval Office with his accuser, his leading accuser, Senator William Bora of Idaho. And then he sat back and watched the fireworks fly. Classic Coolidge. Uh, for over two hours, the bitter antagonist argued their case before him and with each other as Coolidge said nothing. Finally, white with rage, Dougherty stalked from the room. When he later refused to provide Justice Department files to a congressional inquiry, Coolidge had the excuse he was looking for. He seized the opportunity and he demanded Dougherty's resignation. Through his deft handling of the crisis, he took the wind out of Democratic sails and cemented his own walk on a GOP nomination in 1924. The new Attorney General, Harlan F. Stone, terminated his department's anti-radical division left over from Woodrow Wilson. 
He put an end to unlawful searches, seizures, and all wiretaps. For his part, Coolidge ordered the release of 31 political prisoners still behind bars for violating the Wartime Sedition Act. Although more than sufficient to win him a second term, the president's political skills alone hardly account for his phenomenal hold on the electorate. Nor can he be explained away as Justice Holmes did when he wrote privately that, while I don't expect anything astonishing from Coolidge, I don't want anything astonishing from Coolidge. <laughs> to be sure, voters welcomed Coolidge's prosperity. They admired the president who restored public confidence in the White House, slashed the wartime debt by one-third, and dramatically reduced the tax burden on no one more than low-income workers. By the time he left office, Coolidge saw to it that 98% of his countrymen paid no income taxes at all and 93% of the tax burden was borne by the wealthiest Americans. This in sharp contrast to the rates prevailing under Wilson. By the way, Calvin Coolidge was no supply-sider. When he proposed a 25% across-the-board tax cut in 1925, he also proposed to finance it in part by increasing estate and capital gains taxes paid by those at the top of the economic ladder. I want the people of America to be able to work less for the government and more for themselves, he declared in that year's inaugural address. I want them to have the rewards of their own industry. That is the chief meaning of freedom. No doubt others would disagree. The widely dispersed Coolidge prosperity was by no means universal. Agriculture in particular was depressed long before 1929. Had Coolidge exercised more foresight, had he employed his political clout to forge a more unified Republican front on Capitol Hill? Had he worried less about White House provisions? He, um, needless to say, it comes no surprise, supervised all uh, grocery purchases uh, from the nearest Piggly Wiggly store. Um, had he worried less about people uh, on the domestic staff eating his hams and more about Wall Street speculation and installment plan consumerism? Had the young Federal Reserve more skillfully managed interest rates and the money supply? Had a wave of new autos, radios, and other marvels not glutted the market? Had banks been more honest and Congress more cooperative, might Coolidge have interpreted his mandate more creatively? To argue the affirmative is to dismiss the core beliefs of a president who more than most steered by the North Star of conviction. Not to mention the cranky integrity of one who boasted, I don't work at night. If a man can't finish his job in the day, he's not smart. <laughs> I'm not sure we want to put those words over the entrance to the White House. But if you seek the origins of the Coolidge legend, look no further than this. To more conventional politicians, the man in the White House was an emotionally stilted accident of history, incapable of the grand vision or sweeping gesture. To most voters, on the other hand, he was a leader of rare integrity and immovable principle. If Coolidge wasn't exactly one of them, he was at one with them. When he forcefully denied the right of the Boston police to strike, when he vetoed a soldier's pension bill with the warning that bought patriotism is not patriotism, when he opposed flood relief legislation 
fearing that taxpayer dollars would be siphoned off by private business interests. When he said it was better to kill a bad piece of legislation than to pass a good one, Coolidge reminded his countrymen that the only weakness of representative government was the imperfect human beings who administered it. The most retiring of chief executives was the most rugged of individualists. At his death in January 1933, no tribute meant more than that of H.L. Mencken. With the perspective of time, Mencken had come to reconsider his earlier scathing criticism of the Coolidge presidency. Contrasting Coolidge with Wilson, the world saver, and Hoover, the wonder boy, Mencken anticipated the revisionist scholarship of post-Reagan America. Should the day ever dawn, said the sage of Baltimore, quote, when Jefferson's warnings are heeded at last and we reduce government to its simplest terms, it may very well happen that Cal's bones, now resting inconspicuously in the Vermont granite, will come to be revered as those of a man who really did the nation some service. Not a bad epitaph for one whose first thought on being roused from bed in the middle of the night and thrust into the presidency was, I believe I can swing it. Thank you very much. We've got microphones, and hopefully we've got questions or comments or if you want to take issue, that's fine too. It's a free country. Yeah. More about Grace. She was a remarkable woman. Um, grew up in Burlington, Vermont. Um, attended the University of Vermont. Um, was the first first lady with a career. Taught at the, uh, the Clark School for the Deaf, which was a, a cause close to her heart all her life. Um, she first, <laughs> first saw her future husband one day she was walking down a street in Wintry, Northampton, and she looked up and she saw this young man, um, sort of from the waist up, um, in a union suit, with a top with a top hat, uh, sticking down a cowlick, shaving, and she burst out laughing, and that was her first that was her introduction to Calvin Coolidge. Um, they were married. They they took their honeymoon in Montreal, and they came back two days early. <laughs> and, he, and he unloaded uh, a bag of uh, socks that needed darning and she said my god you think that you married me um, for, because of your socks and he said no but it comes in handy um, the fact is he came back because he was running for school committee in Northampton he said well we've seen everything so let's get, go home and um, the only election he ever lost was to a man named John J. Kennedy uh, for the school committee of Northampton. And uh, it was said at the time, he talked to a neighbor on Massasoit Street who said, I voted for Kennedy. And he said, why? He said, because he has children in school. And Coolidge said, well, you might have given me time. Um, <laughs> Grace had a marvelous joy de vivre about her. I mean, talk about opposites attracting. I mean, the first time she ever took him to meet her, her parents, first of all, she took him to meet one of her, her girlfriends from the University of Vermont, and he sat there, didn't say a thing, 
and, and she said, this friend said, my God, Grace, he's a stick. I mean, you know, what do you see in him? And, and she said, and, and on the way back, they quarreled. I mean, Grace said, my God, you sat there like, you know, up on a log. Why, you know, she was scared to death of you. And he said, she'll find out I'm not scary. And um, his mother-in-law never liked him. They never, they never hit it off. Um, but then Harry Truman's mother-in-law, you know, didn't care for, didn't care for, care for him. Um, Grace raised the boys. I knew John Coolidge for 30 years. Um, was privileged to know him, um, and he was very, he was very reticent. He was a Vermonter. He inherited that from his father but he inherited much more from his mother. Calvin Jr. was his father's son, and, and John was his mother's son. And um, it's very clear, as much as what he didn't say, I mean, he's sort of reading between the lines. His father was a very difficult man, a very odd man, um, in a lot of ways. Um, when uh, John would come home from college um, and come to dinner in the White House, and he'd be sent to his room to dress formally, to dress formally. And um, Coolidge made it very clear that he wasn't dining at the White House as a Coolidge. He was dining as a son of the president. I mean, he had this sense of, you know, the dignity of the office. And, um, but he was a very controlling, controlling figure. On the other hand, he had this delightful sense of humor. He, um, he was a practical joker. He was a prankster. He used to give names to, the, to everyone on the White House staff. You know, the butlers were Bug and Mink. And um, he used to like to press the button under his desk, and everyone would come running, the Secret Service, while he slipped out and went window shopping uh, in, in, in Washington. And Grace put up with it. Um, she seems to have had this amazing equilibrium and a sense of humor. She burst out laughing one day, listening to him make a speech. She had to hide behind a pillar because he quacked, he had quacked. I mean, he had this, this very nasal Vermont twang and uh, it made her laugh and I think you know deep down he laughed that, that she laughed um, but he was um, he had very low reserves of energy he could get cranky very easily he was, could not have been an easy man to live with but you know there's a wonderful story um, in their retirement after 1929 they went back to Northampton and they went back to the $28 duplex um, and they would have they would have died there, except to their horror they'd become a tourist attraction. And Coolidge used to sit out on the porch, and some weekends thousands of cars would come down this little side street, and people would want to see him, take his picture, go up, shake his hand. Uh, there's actually uh, actual stories of reporters who climbed inside the bathroom, uh, reported that the president shaved in an old-fashioned nightshirt. Um, you know, there's a wonderful story that Coolidge could hear because, you know, the house, the front porch of the house was, you know, that, that, that far away. And the cars would go by and one day someone said, oh, don't think much of this. And Coolidge said, Democrats. Um, you know, uh, but Grace would have been perfectly happy, you know, in the, in the six-room duplex. Um, but they finally, he, you know, it just, it drove him crazy. He couldn't go window shopping. Um, it was like Midas's touch, you know? And um, so finally, a year later, um, they left. They, they bought an estate, a small estate behind Iron Fence, 
um, a place called The Beaches. It's still there, overlooking the Connecticut River. It was lovely, and Grace loved it. Um, but there's a wonderful story. One day, she was sitting at her desk working, and she became aware of a presence, and then, you know, a peck on the cheek. And, um, and, and he, you know, he said, do you know what today is? And she said, our anniversary. He said, I just wanted to make sure you remembered. And there, there were, you know, there was very understated New England displays of affection, which aren't displays of affection anywhere else, but uh, they are in New England. When he died, she was liberated. I mean, she, she grieved sincerely, don't get me wrong. But guess what? She got to do all those things that he hadn't allowed. She went up in an airplane. She bobbed her hair. She wore slacks. She went to Europe. She was the number one fan of the Boston Red Sox. She loved the Red Sox. She would listen to baseball games. She would always be the guest of the Red Sox for opening day. And at the very end of her life, uh, when she just wasn't able to go, you know, the whole team sent her an autograph ball and roses on opening day. But I mean, she, you know, she was this wonderful, uh, marvelous person. She also was politically active. She was outspoken before Pearl Harbor about the need for the United States to get into the war and, uh, and save the British. Um, and um, she was very active during the war. And, um, you know, she, uh, she died in 1957, uh, one day, hours before the anniversary of Calvin Jr.'s death, which I don't think she ever got over. That's a very long answer, but, I'm, but she's, you know, she's such a wonderful wonderful person and such a counterpoint one quick story there's a marvelous story where, where um, her portrait is probably the most striking of all the portraits in the White House of First Ladies just extraordinary um, just grabs you and, the, and it was with the, the, the collie the white collie Prudence Prim Coolidge uh, was a president who, who ended the, the custom of, uh, he, he loved the sequoia, the presidential yacht, and he would go down to Mount Vernon. Of course, they, they shoot they shoot off a, a, a salute, and he halted that practice because it made Prudence Prim uh, bark, and because all oh, those bullets cost a lot of money. Um, but anyway, there's this wonderful picture of Grace in this striking kind of flapper dress, red on red. You know, you you may have seen the portrait and the white, you know. And uh, the the uh, the artist was complaining about you know about about something about the color scheme, and um, so he suggested, well you know reverse the order. I said, what do you mean? He said, well make the dress white and the dog red. Um, but anyway, you you were about to ask a question. You said that he blamed himself for the death of his son. But how did the process did he reach that conclusion? Because. The, uh, the death was a result of uh, Calvin Jr.'s playing tennis on a White House court, uh, raising a blister which became infected and blood, po uh, blood poisoning set in. And had Coolidge not been in the White House, Calvin Jr. would never have been on the White House court. It's not rational, but it is a it's a it's a testament to the uh, to the lifelong you know grief that that he felt over the loss of the boy. Yeah. How did he get from Vermont? Uh, how did he get from Vermont into Massachusetts politics? Yeah, he, well, he went to Amherst College, 
and um, from Amherst, he decided uh, that um, he was going to practice law. So he just he went over, you know, neighboring Northampton, apprenticed, and um, the rest is history. He uh, he was mayor of Northampton. He was city solicitor. Um, he was state senator. He was state senate president, lieutenant governor, governor, vice president, president. I mean, it's just. You know, for someone seemingly bereft of the normal political gifts, I think he held more offices than any American president. Yeah. What kind of relationship did he have with Hardy, and what do you think of? Him? And um, is there a biography of Calvin Coolidge in the works? Uh, no, but there, there are some. No, no, there are some. God, let me finish Rockefeller first. There are some, there are some good biographies of Coolidge. There are some also very bad ones. But um, Harding, um, well, it's interesting. You know, Harding um, tried to be. For example, Harding saw to it that Coolidge was the first vice president who attended cabinet meetings. Now he never opened his mouth, but he was there. Um, there's the wonderful story. Of, uh, Mrs. Harding, on the other hand, did not care for the Coolidges, but she wouldn't have cared for anyone. Um, and um, there was an, a bill introduced. There's a mansion in Washington, it's still there, in northwest Washington, and it was going to be turned into a vice presidential residence long before, of course, the, the old naval uh, uh, property. And uh, Florence Harding said, I'm going to get that bill killed. You know, a hotel suite is good enough for those Coolidges. Well, they lived at the Willard Hotel. And the story, true story, there was a fire in the Willard Hotel. And everyone was, of course, you know, summoned out of their rooms, and they all gathered in the lobby, and the Coolidge's, you know, like everyone else. And Coolidge was, you know, an impatient man, and he waited a while. He waited a while. Everything seemed okay. And he went, you know, he started back to the stairway to go upstairs. And the uh, fire marshal said, wait a second, who are you? He said, I'm the vice president. He said, oh, okay. And Coolidge says, anyway, he said, wait a second, vice president of what? <laughs> he said, I'm the vice president of the United States. He said, get back that here. Get back here. I thought you were the vice president of the hotel. <laughs> yeah. Why did he choose not to run in 1926? Uh, 1928, just to be uh, a pedant. Um, I think he, uh, well, he wrote about it in his memoir, his autobiography, which is, I, I recommend without reservation. Um, if he had run, he almost certainly would have won. That's not in doubt. Then he would have been president for 10 years, longer than anyone else. And Coolidge had this very appropriate sense of, um, you know, of things. And he said, you know, I, I come from the people. I, it's a good thing, you know, I look forward to returning to them. Um, and, you know, this whole kind of minimalist, modest view of the presidency, which is so different from what we see today. Um, now, it has been said, and Mrs. Coolidge has been cited as a source, uh, although it also has been di uh, disputed, that um, she supposedly said, Papa smells a depression coming. There's no evidence, really, to support that. I think, and I also think he was ill. He um, he had a heart condition. He'd lost his son. He just lost his father. Um, I think he was 
eager, the burdens of the presidency. This was not a man with real reserves of energy to draw on. This was not Theodore Roosevelt, who also died at 60. But anyway. Coolidge was um, steeped in Yankee, homegrown, democratic congregationalism. Um, he belonged. He joined the Congregational Church in Washington, in Northampton. He attended the Edwards Congregational Church, and Congregationalism, among uh, you know other things, is is highly democratic. Um, it's a church uh, without hierarchies, um, and um, it's very decentralized, very localized, and it's a kind of it's the town meeting principle applied to to uh, religion. Um, I think Coolidge was a very spiritual man. Um, I, and I think it's so easy today, we're so cynical, because we hear this kind of rote talk about, you know, God is dragged into every political campaign. Uh, you know, he almost becomes a spin doctor. Um, but I think when you read Coolidge and you learn about Coolidge, it was real and it was understated and all the more authentic for being so. That's a good question, though, Ralph. I'm glad you asked. One more? Oh, okay, we got two more. One, one there, and then, then you. Yeah, well, you know, it was typical. Um, what he did was, um, in the 1927 Mississippi flood, first of all, there was no role for the federal government in disaster relief. Didn't exist. Um, under the... Uh, the only exception of that, when the Galveston hurricane took place, um, some uh, the army had, had sent supplies, uh, but basically you relied on uh, private charity and above all the Red Cross. What happened in 1927 was that here's this disaster that is so much larger than anything else that had ever happened. And um, what Coolidge did was to send Herbert Hoover. Uh, the master of emergencies, the man who had fed Belgium in World War One, who had organized the Food Administration uh, here at home, uh, and someone whose name was synonymous with relief. So that actually, believe it or not, I mean, that represented more than um, um, had been done in the past. Hoover went out, and of course what he did was he cemented his own reputation um, that led to his election as president one year later. Um, and he came back. Coolidge, Coolidge, in the end, acceded to flood relief, but he believed that it set a dangerous precedent. That if you once said government has a role, particularly in a mass disaster, you know, then before you knew it, that role would be institutionalized for lesser events. And again, it's a um, it's not a modern way of looking at things, but it's um, it has a certain integrity. And you, sir. What was the official cause of Harding's death, and how did the Coolidge get noticed that the president? Harding died of a heart attack, a massive coronary. Um, although that's still being, you know, debated by by scholars. Um, Mrs. Harding had nothing to do with his death. 
um, contrary to what you know some people, some sensationalists. We didn't invent you know sensationalism. Um, what happened was the news from the um, hotel in San Francisco was, of course, immediately uh, telephoned to Washington, and um, and a call. The, the Coolidge household, the Coolidge farmhouse in Plymouth Notch, in addition to having no electricity and no indoor plumbing, did not have a telephone. So uh, the news was telephoned up to Rutland, Vermont, which is a few miles away, and uh, and there was this kind of mad dash in the middle of the night to, to carry the news up to this isolated hamlet. Um, now across the street from the farmhouse was the little house where he was born, as a, which was uh, attached to the local uh, post office and um, general store, which had been run by his father. And uh, that's where Coolidge used to take journalists for one five-cent moxie. Um, he would treat them to one uh, moxie. And uh, anyway, so what they did was they actually ran a phone from the uh, general store across the one street in Plymouth Notch and into the window of the parlor of the, of the house. Uh, so anyway, the news the, the news came, and it was his father who was woken up uh, and told the news. Uh, the president and Grace were sleeping on the second floor um, in a bedroom that uh, actually you, you can't visit today but uh, because the stairway is so narrow. But uh, Coolidge wrote in his autobiography that he knew when he heard his father's voice coming up the stairs that something was wrong. And I suspect he may very well have. And then um, his father told him that uh, the president had died. And Calvin and Grace, they got out of bed, they, they dressed, and they knelt in prayer. And uh, then came down the stairs. And at 2.47 in the morning, in the front parlor, the room where his mother had died, the room where his sister Abby had died, a room rich in emotion and memories uh, by the light of a kerosene lamp with, I believe, eight onlookers. Um, he was sworn into office by his father. Extraordinary scene. Of course, the sequel is... Uh, he had been told by the Attorney General, the aforementioned Harry Dougherty, that this was perfectly legal because his father was a notary public. Just to be on the safe side, when they got back to Washington, they repeated the ceremony, uh, this time with uh, someone who was not a notary public. And, but, you could, but that was done secretly. What, what, what the public seized upon, the defining moment of the Coolidge presidency, was this extraordinarily primitive yet appealing seen in a Vermont farmhouse in the middle of the night. Thank you very much. See you tomorrow.